You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Brenda Yescas. And on tonight's show, Julieta Kuznir interviews Phil Neff, board member of NISQA, Network in Solidarity with the People of Guatemala, and the tension that is happening there with the current administration's actions towards that country. I interview Susana Arenas Pebroso, director and choreographer, and Stella Edelman, a dancer in her company, Arenas Dance Company. They'll be talking about their latest piece playing in the Bay Area, SOC, Más que bailar en Cuba, bailaremos por Cuba. Julieta also interviews Imogene Tondra, co-author of Cuba, the cookbook. All this plus música and the calendar of Bay Area events. Stay tuned. You're listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Julieta Kuznir, and we are going to talk about Guatemala today. We're very lucky to have on the line with us Phil Neff. He's joining us from Washington. He actually is on the board of NISWA, an organization that we've checked in with over the years. That's done really important solidarity work with Guatemala. Phil, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So, Phil, I wasn't even really clear. I know that it's a very difficult time in Guatemala, that there has been a lot of tension in terms of repression, and I'm hearing about the difficulty and the safety issues that people are experiencing. But put that in context. What's happening at a national level that is creating an even heightened sense of fear for folks? Well, sure. In terms of summarizing the national context in in Guatemala, First, there's the the regional context of Central America with the concerns around corruption, uh, environmental um, issues, including drought um, and the ways that is impacting communities across the region. In Guatemala specifically, the um, last few years under the presidency of Jimmy Morales have been marked by a reaction against recent improvements in access to justice and uh, movements against impunity in Guatemala. So those included um, an up, a popular uprising, which uh, along with support from institutions, including the UN Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, resulted in the, the stepping down of uh, former President uh, Otto Perez Molina, who was a former military officer implicated in the Guatemalan genocide. But the presidency of Jimmy Morales has been marked by a sort of reaction against those gains for justice and against impunity. And that has included a campaign against the the UN Commission Against Impunity, which had done a lot to expose networks of corruption and political influence in the Guatemalan state, and also a wave of violence against primarily indigenous environmental defenders, um, but other also other social movement organizers in Guatemala during the last several years, which has seen dozens of community organizers targeted and, and killed with almost no uh, investigation or justice in, in any of those cases. And so the current situation, I think, is one of you know, concern that recent gains for human rights and justice 
are, are backsliding. That's the voice of Phil Neff. He's speaking as a member of the board of NISQA. And NISQA has been working around solidarity with Guatemala. And so we're talking about the state of Guatemala right now and also the many ways that repression is occurring. So Phil, you talked about some of the ways that people who are working to address extraction of resources and destruction of the environment have been targeted in the past. We've highlighted that on our show over the years because it's really been pretty egregious, the the risks that people have had to take to stand up for these basic principles of just keeping water clean or having their land protected from very invasive and damaging drilling and extraction. So we know that right now there is a lot of um, militarization that's increased, which is also joined hand in hand with the repression that people are feeling. Can you tell us about what are some of the things that you're hearing about in terms of fear that people are experiencing? As, As we know, there's been pretty consistent repression around folks who've worked around environmental issues. But what is NISWA hearing? Um, Well, the most recent issue that we've been monitoring is the imposition of a state of siege in 22 different municipalities in five departments, six departments across the northeast of, of Guatemala. And so the state of siege is decreed by the executive of Guatemala and then approved by Congress. It's basically a measure just short of a state of war, and it involves the curtailing of a whole slew of constitutional rights. And the state of siege and, and similar measures have been used repeatedly by you know various administrations in, in recent years, and always in the context of regional struggles around territory of indigenous communities in a pattern that 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 has really shown us the, that states of siege and exception are used to reassert state control um, over territories where there are deep-rooted social conflicts, and um, that leads to criminalization of organizations and, and leaders, and has allowed corporations involved in mega agriculture, extractive industry to also reassert their control over territory in the context of the state of siege. So the most recent uh, state of siege was imposed just within the last couple of weeks, again, in six departments across uh, a, a huge part of the country, based off of a single violent incident in one community in, in, a, in a village in the department of El Estor, um, which the military characterized as a confrontation with, with drug traffickers, um, but which community members have have characterized as uh, provocation by the military. Four community members and three army personnel died in that incident on September 3rd, and that was used as the pretext to uh, impose a state of siege across uh, almost a third of the country. And so that state of siege has been roundly condemned by Guatemalan social movement organizations, victims of the internal armed conflict, and international organizations involved in monitoring human rights and working in solidarity with Guatemalan social movements. So when we think about Guatemala, people oftentimes, maybe the only context they have is the terrible reports they're hearing on the news by current U.S. president just talking about all the violent people coming from Central America. But we don't hear much about the very strong indigenous communities that make up Guatemala. So what are you all seeing as some of the main things that you all are doing to support indigenous groups on the ground in Guatemala? 
Well, as the network in solidarity with the people of Guatemala, we partner with Guatemalan-based organizations, including indigenous-led social movement organizations and communities um, in various regions of the country. The, the region most affected by the current state of siege is a region that is historically Maya Kekchi uh, territory, as well as uh, Garifuna territory. Um, but also other indigenous groups in, in, in that area as well. And uh, as, as Nisqua, well, we, we, we've seen similar impacts of the, uh, of the current state of siege in other areas of the country. We have partnered with uh, local indigenous communities working to defend life, territory, and, um, and water from extractive megadevelopment. So for example, with Shinka indigenous communities in the um, eastern part of Guatemala, which have been affected by a uh, US-owned mining company, Tahoe Resources. We've been working in solidarity with groups, including the Shinka Parliament, to document um, ongoing repression against community groups that have, have uh, organized against impacts of, of mining in, in their region, and that region was affected by a state of siege um, within the last several years as well. And then similarly in um, north, the northwestern highlands of Guatemala in Huehuetenango uh, and um, the region of Barillas, a uh, state of siege was imposed within the last few years as well around community resistance to hydroelectric dams. Um, and in the wake of that, community leaders, ancestral authorities of indigenous groups, including Canjobal and Mayamam communities were, were criminalized and uh, Nisqua was part of a campaign to support and secure the release of political prisoners who were uh, criminalized in the wake of the, the state of siege in Huehuetenango. Um, and so we do that work through international transnational communications uh, activities and also by placing trained volunteer human rights observers called accompaniers alongside Guatemalan organizations working for human rights and social justice. So how can people support the work NISWA is doing and stay up on the different developments? Because it is really hard to get news around what's happening in Guatemala. So what can people do if they want to stay connected? Network in Solidarity with the People of Guatemala is the name of the organization, and you can find us on all the usual social media platforms, usually under our organizational acronym NISGUA, N-I-S-G-U-A org is the website. And uh, we work to provide uh, updates about uh, news from Guatemala from a solidarity perspective and um, as much as possible lift up the directly lift up the voices of our Guatemalan partner organizations working on these issues. If you uh, visit our website, nisqua.org, there are always the most urgent actions. We'll be on the page there. We have currently an uh, urgent action around the Escobal mine, which is owned by a company called Pan American Silver. Um, you can take action on that case. It's not specifically related to the, the current state of siege, um, but it is related to the the Shinka communities that were resisting uh, mining in their territories. So there's an action on our website. Our current fundraising campaign is scholarship fund for um, our human rights accompaniers to support human rights accompaniers with a racial justice uh, lens on our on our organizing and recruitment for for that program. And so we're 
requesting donations for, for scholarships for, for um, people to participate in that program. I've been speaking to Phil Neff. He's on the board of NISWA. La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. I'm Brenda Yescas. And on tonight's show, I have in the studio with me Susana Arenas Pedroso, director and choreographer of the Arenas Dance Company, and Stella Edelman, producer and dancer with the company. They're going to talk about their latest piece called Eso Si, Más Que Bailar en Cuba, Bailaremos por Cuba. Bienvenidos a Crónicas de la Raza, ladies. Hi, Brenda. Hi. Thank you very much for inviting us to these wonderful programs. Hello, hello. First, I want to ask you, Susana, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your background and how you became passionate about your dance. Vamos a hablar de ti, Susana, y tu historia y tu pasión del baile. ¿Cómo empezó eso? Wow. You know, imagines. Always I like to dance. Always. My mom was dancer, my grandma singer, my dad was musicians. 
my uncle was musician. So I pretty much I grew up in that kind of energy, right? And then, but besides dance, also I like percussion. I like percussion because I saw my brother play the guitar. My grandma played the drums, you know, stuff like that. But uh, my mom always take me to the dance class. And then the first part I wanted to dance was in the comparsa. And comparsa, that was my neighbor and my auntie take me. And I start to dance like that, starting comparsa, and then after that, in the school, they teach us cha-cha-cha, mambo, and definitely always I want to do dance, always, no matter what. Even sometimes the government take a, give me song like a different career, like a, like a agricultural stuff like that. Bueno, mi pasión fundamental siempre ha sido la danza y la percusión. Siempre me gustó. Yo crecí eh, en una familia de músicos, cantantes, y mi abuela cantaba, mi papá era músico, mi tío era músico. Yo crecí en ese ambiente. Y entonces, yo recuerdo que como a la edad de siete años, mi tía me llevó a bailar en una comparsa que se llamaba Los CDR. Y de ahí yo estaba muy contenta porque yo quería, terminaba la escuela y decía, no, vámonos para los ensayos, vámonos para los ensayos. Y después en la escuela, en la escuela primaria, eh, a nosotros los cubanos nos enseñan los bailes populares, como el chachachá, el mambo, el pilón, y también los bailes folclóricos de Cuba, con toda la influencia que tienen de África y de España. Y a mí siempre me gustó, siempre me gustó la danza. De ahí viene mi pasión. ¿Y nos puedes hablar un poco de qué es la comparsa? What is a comparsa? Bueno, eh, en Cuba tenemos dos estilos. Tenemos un estilo que sería el de La Habana, que le llamo comparsa, con más que bien es la forma en que tocan y la forma en que bailan. Y en la parte este de Cuba tenemos lo que le llaman las congas, y es donde utilizan la trompeta china, y los, y los movimientos también son un poco diferentes. Y también hablaste un poco de las influencias de la danza cubana, como el cha-cha-cha. ¿Tiene influencias africanas y españolas? ¿Puedes hablar un poco de eso? Can you talk to us a little bit about the influences of Cuban dance music? Yeah, definitivamente toda la música uh, cubana popular tiene mucha influencia de, de la música africana. Nosotros tenemos esa mezcla, como dije anteriormente, de África y de España, donde fundamentalmente tenemos la clave cubana, que sería papá, pa-u, papá, que es la reina del pentagrama de la música cubana. Entonces, el cha-cha-cha, el mambo y todo esto que fueron creados como en los 60, como en los 50, el mambo, tienen fundamentalmente influencia de la música africana. Y obvio, nosotros los cubanos, esto aprendemos, esto estudiamos la música de todas partes del mundo y creamos nuestra, nuestro propio estilo. Y eso lo hace que nosotros los cubanos seamos bastante competitivos, creativos en general. ¿Y nos puedes contar qué clase de bailes bailan en tu compañía? What kind of dances do you all dance in your Arenas Dance Company? Bueno, Arenas Dance Company eh, básicamente eh, se enfoca en nosotros rescatar todo lo que es la música y la danza cubana, sin importar la edad que tengan, sin importar la nacionalidad que tengan. Es mi deber como latina como cubana, como, no sé, apasionada 
a la danza y a, a las artes en general, enseñar en, en este país maravilloso y sobre todo en el área de la Bahía, que es yo creo que la mejor parte del mundo, eh, me, las influencias que tenemos nosotros. Entonces, en Arenas Dance Company se baila eh, todo lo que es la influencia africana, sobre todo de la parte de Nigeria. Digamos, el, eh, la parte de los yorubas, que hablaríamos de los orillas, y cuando estamos hablando de los orillas, serían todo lo del panteón yoruba, el Ebba, Ogun, Ochosi, eh, Babaluaye, Yemoya, Oshun, Obatala, Agayú, Changó, eh, eh, Odudua, etcétera, todo lo que estamos hablando de la regla de Ocha. Entonces, eh, también dentro de estas danzas están eh, los Bantú, que estaríamos hablando de, que es, es la segunda cultura más fuerte que hay en Cuba. Estaríamos hablando de la yuca, de la macuta, del congo, ¿no? Que tienen, son muy fuertes estas danzas. Y también estaríamos hablando de otras danzas, como ya dijimos anteriormente, eh, la rumba, que incluye ahí el yambú, el guaguancó, la columbia, y un derivado de la columbia, que sería la jiribilla, y todo esto entra dentro de la, de la, del elemento de la música popular. Y entonces también está las danzas populares, como sería el danzón, el son, el chachachá, el mambo. También en Cuba tenemos el mozambique, el pilón y otras danzas que a veces no, no bailamos mucho, como el sucuzucu, eh, el changüí también, sobre todo en La Habana, eh, que no se baila mucho, pero en la parte este bailan un poco más de changüí. And one of the things that I think is so special about Arenas Dance Company is this, that it's both folkloric and popular dance that uh, the dancers and Suzanne has expertise in. You don't usually see that that often, that you have a focus on both uh, dance forms so strongly. And so talking about popular dance and music, música popular, estamos hablando de danza y música popular de Cuba. ¿Cómo el arte está apoyado en Cuba versus aquí en los Estados Unidos? How is art supported in Cuba versus here in the United States? Estamos hablando de comparar cómo sería el apoyo de, la, de las artes en Cuba y, y las artes aquí. Sí. Bueno, más que nada, en Cuba el gobierno sí apoya. Eh, apoya muchísimo a las artes. La música y la danza es totalmente... Apoyado. Yo recuerdo que antes de salir de Cuba para acá, esto, a veces un médico, como el médico de la salsa, esto, prefieren más como ser cantante, bailarines, que ser médico. ¿Por qué? Porque el gobierno tiene una cosa que verdaderamente eh, eh, apoya a la salsa. Por ejemplo, yo en Cuba era bailarina y punto. A mí me pagan por ser bailarina. Entonces, si una persona es músico, le pagan por ser músico. Y una persona es cantante, le pagan por ser cantante. Si una persona es pintor, le pagan por ser pintor. ¿Usted me entiende? El gobierno apoya eso. Tú eres específicamente en lo que tú eres y ser bueno en lo que haces. Eh, comparado con aquí, aquí yo... Esto, yo eh, en estos momentos soy coreógrafa, soy bailarina, eh, soy, soy cantante de momento, me pongo a cantar. Y la manera en que eh, apoyan, por ejemplo, instituciones como Dance Missions, como instituciones como Cuba Caribe y otras instituciones apoyan a nosotros porque escriben becas y esas becas es lo que nos ayuda. Y gracias a beca que realizó Dance Mission es porque podemos hacer este tipo de eh, producción. 
este tipo de show, porque es un poco difícil. Es un poco difícil vivir de y para la... Es súper difícil. Por ejemplo, otro ejemplo sería esto. En Cuba, un artista como Beyoncé o Shakira o Rihanna, nos, y si tuvieran show en toda la semana, los cubanos tuviéramos oportunidades de verlo completamente. Comparado aquí, si Beyoncé tiene un show... Eh, y cuesta tanto, podemos ver uno, pero no podemos ver el de Shakira, no podemos ver el de Ana Gabriel, o no podemos ver, sería muy caro. Entonces eh, hay una gran diferencia entre un, en una isla y, y otro país. Y hablando de tu isla y tu historia, ¿cómo empezó este, esta, esta compañía? What's the history behind the Arenas Dance Company? Bueno, prácticamente nosotros teníamos, eh, yo tenía un grupo eh, que se llamaba Sandunga Cubana y el otro era Olorum, como el sol, más o menos. Y teníamos funciones y entonces en el 2004 yo decidí agrupar los dos grupos y formar esta compañía Arenas Dance Company, Company que sería Arena, es mi apellido, todo el esfuerzo que he hecho, los años que llevo trabajando y más que nada, arenas, usted sabe, me gusta el mar, me gusta mucho el mar, me gusta mucho el río. Y entonces yo decidí, en honor a mí, a mi esfuerzo, a mi sacrificio que tenga. Y es mi legado también, al final del día, para dejárselo en la comunidad. ¿Me entiendes? Todo lo que sabemos de Cuba, todo lo que hacemos, quiénes somos, por qué somos, eh, principalmente ha sido creada Arenas Dance Company. Y háblame un poco de tu nueva Pieza, eso sí, más que bailar en Cuba, bailaremos por Cuba. Tell me a little bit about your new piece. Precisamente por eso. Esto, vivo hace 21 años en los Estados Unidos. Hace 21 años yo llegué de Cuba y desde que llegué a Cuba enseñando, bailando, haciendo coreografías, enseñando a niños, a jóvenes, a adultos, acerca de los cubanos y solamente no cómo bailamos, en qué creemos, por qué creemos, por qué somos dramáticos, por qué somos altaneros, por qué somos, uh, eh, hablamos rápido, muy rápido y sobre todo en La Habana no mencionamos la S, la R, la inmensa mayoría, ¿no? Entonces, 20 años de trabajo, eso sí, trabajo, energía, amor y sobre todo mucha pasión. Eso sí, eh, Bailando aquí en, en el área de la Bahía, específicamente en California, um, todo lo que he enseñado, eso sí, eso sí es mi energía, eso sí es mi forma de ser, eh, la alegría sobre todo, eh, la pasión que yo tengo para la danza, el amor que yo tengo a, a, a mi país, independientemente de que viva aquí, el amor que yo tengo a mis, a mis creencias, Uh, la manera en que nací, la manera en que me crié, de eso se trata, eso sí, 20 años de trabajo, quién soy, por qué soy, por qué me gusta la clave, por qué me gusta la música, porque no me gusta darle pie a estar en, en la depresión, a estar triste. Eh, yo pienso que bailar hace mucho, el, hace cambios. Y por eso mi show es, eso sí, eso sí es amor, eso sí. Hablar, eso sí, demostrar que somos mujeres fuertes, que somos latinos, que somos unidos, que soy un negra latina de Cuba, que vengo aquí, que muchas personas creen en mí, 
de eso se trata, eso sí, que hay cubanos que van a trabajar con nosotros, que tienen mucho talento y que ser, eh, sería bueno, este es el momento de que estemos unidos y que cada uno aportemos un poquito de arena. Wow, pues felicitaciones por 20 años. Muchas gracias. De, de trayectoria. Sí. Uh, hablando de mujeres y amor, ¿cuántas bailarinas hay en, en tu compañía? How many dancers are there in your company? Bueno, interesante, es interesante. Y buena pregunta. ¿Por qué? Porque eh, yo soy de las personas que creo mucho en el potencial de los estudiantes. Muchos de ellos tienen un potencial, pero está dormido. Yo estoy encargada de despertar ese esa energía, ese, esa, esa potencia tan grande que tienen. Y ha pasado. Muchas de estas muchachas apenas tienen conmigo seis meses, un año, dos años, dos años y medio, más o menos. En todo este tiempo han demostrado fuerza, energía, seriedad en el trabajo. Y lo más reciente es que tengo como cuatro muchachos que han llegado y de la nada yo los puse a, a enseñar y a trabajar y a tomar las clases y ahora son parte de Arenas Dance Company. Increíblemente me tienen impresionada cómo ellos con esa energía, con esa fuerza y con el respeto que me tienen, ellos tratan de, de bailar y hacerlo lo mejor posible. And it's, uh, I've been studying with, uh, with Susana Arena since 1999. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, and it's just amazing, though. You start out as a student, and then soon enough you're there, um, and you're, you know, because she trains you so well, you're performing at the Ethnic Dance Festival, at the War Memorial Opera House, at the Herbst Theater, these places in San Francisco. You're going on tour to places in Arizona, all throughout California. Um, so uh, it's an amazing training and an opportunity that she just gets out of you. And tell us a little bit about Dance Mission and when are the dates for these performances and where are they going to be held? Yeah, so Dance Mission is super, super proud to be able to present the show of SOC. Um, Susana Arenas Pedroso is, is a resident artist at Dance Mission Theater and is someone that we just completely love and adore as a woman with amazing, amazing artistic voice. So what we've done is we've produced this series called Word, the Women Oracle Radical Dance Series. We're presenting a number of, of female artists, women-identified artists, with Susana Arenas being, a Pedroso being one of them. We are teaming up with our partners here in the East Bay at Eastside Arts Alliance, our longtime partners, and they're presenting the first weekend and then we're doing the second. So the first weekend will be October 6th at Eastside Arts Alliance in Oakland. And then the following weekend, October 11th, 12th, and 13th, the shows will be at Dance Mission Theater in San Francisco. Uh, Dance Mission is what we consider ourselves um, an organization that operates at the intersection of art and social change. We look at everything through a feminist lens of intersectionality. So this is why we have this focus on, on women artists. We want to make sure that we support women and also with all of their identities. So their, their job, class, race, all of that good stuff that comes with, uh, you know, intersectionality. And we definitely need more of that, for sure. Um, Definitivamente. Definitely. Well, Estela and Susana, can you tell us a little bit about where our listeners could get more information about the company and Dance Mission Theater? 
Yeah, so to find out more information about Arenas Dance Company, you can go to the website, which is arenasdancecompany.com. That's A-R-E-N-A-S, dancecompany.com. You can also check out Dance Mission's website, which is dancemissiontheater.org. And you can also call 415-826-4441. And that will give you, if you check out any of those places, you'll find out information about uh, Susana Arenas Pedroso and her, her work, this show, where to get tickets in San Francisco, where to get tickets in Oakland, um, all the details. Están invitados para este show. Eso sí, bailar cambia vida. Bailar da energía. Bailar es sabroso. Bailar es importante porque conoces personas bueno para el espíritu, para el, para el, el, el alma, es bueno para todo. Yo les recomiendo que nos apoyen y que así con este talento que tienen estos muchachos y así yo como artista poder desarrollarme un poco más para planes futuros también. Muchísimas gracias a todo el público que nos escucha y, y gracias Brenda. Yeah, and just there's um, some amazing guest artists that are going to be part of the show as well. Uh, Freyla Blanco will be coming and joining us from Portland, an amazing Cuban artist that uh, is from the dance company Raices Profundas, which uh, Susana also danced with in Havana. Um, also, our local gem, Sandy Perez, an amazing percussionist, will be joining us for this show. We'll also have um, Radames Viega coming in from Miami, an amazing, amazing Cuban singer, um, as well as local stars Ramon Ramos Alao, Yesmari, uh, Roilan Rubato, Denis Ben Denis Ben, etc., etc. Yeah. Una pila de gente. Así nada más. H y nada. Para arriba de la caliente porque la caliente está arriba de ti. Muchas gracias, Tela y Susana, for being here on La Raza Chronicles and talking to me about your beautiful piece coming to the Bay Area. Gracias. Thank you.
listening to La Raza Chronicles, Cronicas de la Raza. On today's program, we're going to talk about cooking. We're going to talk about food, cultura, as we learn so much through La Comida. We're going to talk about a new cookbook that just came out called Cuba, the cookbook. And we have one of the co-authors in our studio right now, Imogene Tondre. Thank you so much, Imogene, for coming in to speak with us. Thank you, Julieta. So first off, this is a cookbook where you, you know, saw a lot of need. Tell us about how you connected to this project and a little bit about this book. Um, well, I moved to Cuba in 2010. I'm originally from Oakland. And at the time, I noticed right away how, how much people talk about food and how that's just kind of always a common topic. And whether it's people telling you what to buy at the market or where you can find good produce. Um, it's just something that, that people talk about a lot. And it wasn't until the next year, 2011, that I became involved in some culinary projects. I was one of the participants in a, in a delegation. I helped organize a delegation of chefs from the Bay Area that came down to Cuba. And we had workshops, and they created menus, and worked with Cuban chefs. And we put on several meals. And they, they used all Cuban ingredients. They didn't bring their own ingredients or anything. So that project got me kind of into this culinary world, and through that I met Madalaine Vasquez-Galvez, who's my co-author of the book. She's published several cookbooks in in Cuba and is one of the co-founders of the first vegetarian restaurant in Cuba. And she has a cooking show on television, and so we became friends and colleagues, and we continued these um, culinary delegations with chefs coming and visiting and cooking together. And then later I did a master's at the University of Havana where I studied food culture and the private sector. So how throughout the last 40 or so years, the changes in the private sector have influenced food culture in Cuba and, and those impacts today. So I would go to Madeleine's house. She has an amazing culinary library and she helped me with my thesis and we continued our, our friendship. And then Fiden, the, the publisher, contracted us to write this book, over 350 uh, home cooking recipes. And it's different from other cookbooks in the sense that I've seen other cookbooks recently published here in the States about Cuban food. And a lot of the time, they are featuring a lot of recipes from restaurants, which have their roots in home cooking. But this is really uh, focused on, on home cooking in a way that other cookbooks might not be. 
That's the voice of Imogene Tondre. We are speaking about the cookbook that she's a co-author of, which is called Cuba, the cookbook. And she's talking to us about what makes it unique. So why don't you walk us through one of the recipes and tell us a little bit of a story behind the dish as well as what makes the recipe different in your cookbook as opposed to maybe others people have seen. Um, well, one recipe that we've talked about a lot is ajiaco, which is important because it's seen as representative of the people of Cuba because the ingredients come from the different ethnic groups that make up the majority of the Cuban population. So ajiaco is this thick, succulent stew, and those ethnic groups are the indigenous population, the Spanish, and the African influence. It's important to to remember that the indigenous population was pretty much wiped out. Um, weren't especially numerous and they were dispersed throughout the island and the Spanish basically eradicated that population. So that means that, of course, the diet becomes distanced from the natural habitat. Um, an example of that is some of the fishing techniques that they used, which weren't especially developed, but they still you know, subsisted on the natural ingredients found on the island, like fish. So fishing was kind of uh, replaced with livestock and a lot of pork, of course, a lot of um, imports from Spain. And then the third influence is, of course, from the African slaves. You can see that in the use of yams and plantains, taro root, okra. All of those ingredients are still very common today in Cuban cuisine. And so, as I mentioned, this dish, the ajiaco, is seen as kind of the national dish and is representative of those populations because the ingredients that it has, including, you know, the ají, the pepper, which is indigenous to Cuba, um, pork and other meat, and then all of these root vegetables like taro root, uh, yams, which came from Africa, all, it's kind of like the melting pot metaphor that people use here. And... Fernando Ortiz, who was a Cuban anthropologist, talks about how Cuba is an ajiaco. And so that's that's one example of a recipe that is very traditional and yet not super common because it's it requires a lot of ingredients, a lot of cooking time. Not everybody has time to make this dish, so it's sometimes reserved for, for special occasions. But it's it's definitely something that is one of the most traditional Cuban dishes. That's the voice of Imogene Tondre. We were talking about Cuba, the cookbook that she's a co-author on and is just been released. It's out and available. People can purchase it online. They can purchase it in their bookstores. So Imogene, when you're thinking about these recipes and you're thinking about Cuban food, which you spent a lot of time thinking about actually when all your research and studies as well as producing this book, would you say that you all have seen, as you're describing Cuba as a place of many mixing of cultures and constant, a lot of shifts that have come, reflect the social and economic and political changes that have happened in the region? Um, how would you say your cookbook reflects some of the more recent changes, or does it show any recent changes in terms of maybe access to different fruits and vegetables, movements around uh, food that are happening on the island, or anything else that you've noticed like in the last 15, 20 years, maybe there have been shifts around food in Cuba? Well, we definitely try to make reference to different moments in history. Like I said, the initial mixture of the indigenous population, the Spanish colonizers and African slaves kind of made up the Cuban population, but it's really much more than that. And in the introduction, we talk about how it's been migrations and history more than geography that have affected Cuban food. So 
you know, we, we talk about other immigrant groups, like after the revolution in Haiti, some French colonizers came over to the eastern side of the island and were uh, very key in, in developing both coca and coffee plantations. Another influence comes from the Chinese, who came to Cuba as indentured servants as early as 1847. And they were instrumental in establishing these first small food stands uh, called fondas. Some of them eventually turned into larger restaurants, but most of them were just these little stands near the port so that they could you know, cater to the sailors coming in and out. And while most of the, even the Chinese-owned fondas featured more fusion or Spanish-style food, some of the ingredients from, from the Chinese, like bok choy, scallions, spinach, uh, these ingredients became incorporated into the recipes and are very important in Cuban food today. Um, there is a Chinatown in Havana. It's hard to find very authentic Chinese food. A lot of it is mixed with um, more Cuban-style food, but but those influences are there. Another example is that there's documentation that rice was cultivated in Cuba as early as 1600, but it's really the Chinese who popularized it. Rice is a huge part of the diet in Cuba today. Uh, to give you an idea, with the ration systems, we get five pounds of rice per person per month. And people eat you know, large portions of rice every day. In terms of other migrations, it's also important to talk about the time between 1902 and 1959. This is when Cuba had symbolic independence. Cuban scholars refer to it as a neo-colony because, of course, after the Spanish-Cuban-American War, the U.S. was very much in control of all the economy and political system. And at the time, there was, of course, this U.S. presence on the island and an exchange of a lot of, of culture, including food culture. Um, you can still see that with some of the language. So, you know, Cubans don't, don't say torta or pastel. They say cake de cumpleaños. And other words like, you know, sandwich or uh, hot dogs and things like that, you definitely see as left over from that time period. Um, and something else that's really interesting that we were studying when we were researching for this book um, during that time, of course, uh, the U.S. was exporting a lot of kitchen appliances to Cuba, and things like pressure cookers and mix masters would come accompanied by little pamphlets with suggested recipes. And some of them, we can still find them because, as I mentioned, Madalane, my co-author, has an excellent culinary library where she's um, set aside as, as many documents and books as she's ever got her hands on. Um, but you see these recipes... And, of course, they talk about, you know, uh, apricots and plums and cherries and all of these fruits that do not grow in Cuba. And, again, that's another step away from the natural habitat. And this is an issue that you know, hundreds of years of colonization in one form or another means that uh, Cuba's food sovereignty is very challenging because there's been this emphasis on these ingredients that are imported. And then, of course, after the, the revolution, um, there was no more U.S. presence. And starting in the 1960s, because of the political ties with the Soviet Union, that also influenced the, cult the food culture to a degree. Um, we have recipes in our book of borscht soup, of beef stroganoff. And these are recipes that are not especially common now, but were during the time of these political ties for between the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And it's interesting because... I feel like you talk to any Cuban of a certain age born within that time period and, and they'll be, you know, they'll sometimes be nostalgic about these 
Soviet products. Entonces, ah, cuando los rusos, ¿no? ¿Te acuerdas del, del chocolate ese? No, no, cuando los rusos. Talking about when, when there were these other ingredients on the market. And so, you know, talking about those different times in history, I think, is important. And then later, when, of course, the Soviet Union collapsed and Cuba was faced with a huge economic crisis, known as the Special Period, There was a lot of creativity, and people were starving, and there was malnourishment and a lot of problems. There was very low food production. And so people came up with very innovative recipes. And we have some of those in here as well because, again, they might not be the most sophisticated of recipes. Of course, you're working with very few ingredients and um, horrible food scarcity issues. But but I thought it was really important to include them as as a nod to the to the creativity that came with the necessity of the time. So there's, you know, notes um, on a few recipes like yogurt cake or or cracker omelets or something that says this this became popular during the special period of the 1990s. And then in terms of, of what makes this different than other cookbooks, I would just say that we tried really hard to focus on both traditional f recipes because, sadly, some of these recipes have been lost because either the ingredients are hard to, to get a hold of or another issue is when you think about it, a generation ago, a lot of women were, were at home and, and had time to make these elaborate dishes and now have been incorporated into the workforce. Um, I talk about Madalena's uh, food library so much because sometimes it's hard to get your hands on old cookbooks. You know, in Cuba, it's common to print a couple hundred copies of a book. And if you don't get it <laughs> at the time it comes out, you might never track it down again. So it's not like other places where the, the access to information is, is especially easy. So we, we wanted that balance of these traditional recipes that we want to really rescue and preserve and also some of the newer adaptations. One example in the – we have a salad chapter – And salads are an important part of the Cuban diet, but they're not prevalent in the, in the Cuban home. The Cuban style is to eat everything on the same plate, arroz, frijoles, meat, everything together. And your salad could be a slice of avocado. It could be tomato and cabbage and carrot with a little dressing. But it's not, you know, there's not a separate salad course. It's right there on the same plate. And you'll hear Cubans say, like, oh, I don't eat salad or I eat tomato, but that's it. So this whole salad res um, chapter, a lot, a lot of these recipes came from El Eco Restaurant El Bambú, which is the restaurant that Madeleine co-founded at the Botanical Garden. And at the time, um, they started incorporating all of these edible flowers, hibiscus and, and pumpkin seeds and, and new ingredients that were never a part of the Cuban diet into the recipes because they got them all from the Botanical Garden. Now, during the 90s, when there was a horrible economic crisis and people were hungry. This restaurant was very popular. People would go to this buffet and eat vegetables like they never had before. And so in the intro to the salad chapter, we say that these are not all typically found in Cuban homes, but that they were created at a specific moment in history at this place, the Eco Restaurant El Bambú, located at the Botanical Garden. And so, you know, there's a mix. We try to have both the most traditional and some of the more unique, um, less common recipes Um, the last chapter is our guest chefs. And so we have both Cuban chefs who live in Cuba and others who live in the United States and England, around the world, and their interpretations of some Cuban recipes. 
Imogene Tondra is giving us an overview of the book she co-authored, Kua, the Cookbook. So it sounds like an exciting way to get to know Kua, a little bit of history, our culture, and also, of course, food. Um, how can people get their hands on this book? Um, well, you can go to your local bookstore. Um, I always encourage people to buy books at bookstores so that bookstores continue to exist. Um, I think it's at several bookstores here in the Bay Area. If not, you can always suggest that they order it. The other option is, of course, online uh, through Amazon. And yeah, it's, it's Fiden is the publisher. So any of those options. Imogene Tandre, thank you so much for taking the time out. You are visiting uh, for just a short amount of time doing this book tour, and we're lucky to have you here in the studios to talk about your book, Cuba, the Cookbook. Muchísimas gracias. Gracias a usted. listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza, and this is the calendar of Cultura y Arte for the Bay Area. For Wednesday, September 26, join the Latinx Research Center at UC Berkeley for their annual welcome reception. It is an interdisciplinary Trans-Americas research hub on campus featuring lectures for scholars, artists, community leaders, and political figures throughout the year. They will announce upcoming events with music, food, and discussion. This is at 2547 Channing Way in Berkeley. Starts at 5 p.m. For more information, go to latinxresearchcenter.xyz. For Saturday, September 28th, La Diaspora Cultural is happening in San Francisco this year. With three stages, six hours of music, performances, visual art, decolonized food, and community. Come and explore identity with the help of arts, cultura, and community for a one-day festival. This is at Impact Hub, 1885 Mission Street in San Francisco, from 4 to 10 p.m. For more information, check out their Facebook page, at Diaspora Fest. For Saturday, September 28th, join Bay Area's own La Misa Negra as they play the Yerba Buena Gardens Festival, Come dance some cumbia and listen to infectious grooves. This is at Yerba Buena Gardens Festival, 760 Howard Street. Starts at 1 p.m. and is wheelchair accessible. From now until Sunday, September 29th, Cinemas San Francisco presents the 11th annual San Francisco Latino Film Festival with over 90 films including shorts, features, and documentaries. There are 12 documentary features 14 narrative features, and nine short programs to choose from. Most features are San Francisco premieres, with a few U.S. and West Coast premieres in the mix. For more information on all the films being showcased, including dates and times, go to sflatinofilmfestival.org. For Thursday, October 3rd, La Peña Cultural Center UC Berkeley Women of Color Initiative and the Queer and Trans Advocacy Project present the Empowering Women of Color Open Mic Series. This series provides a space for performances celebrating the voices of women of color and will include one featured artist per month. This is at La Peña Cultural Center, 3105 Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley. Starts at 7.30 p.m. and is wheelchair accessible. For more information, go to lapeña.org. For Sunday, October 6th, 
Join the Arenas Dance Company for SOC. Más que bailar en Cuba, bailaremos por Cuba. Arenas Dance Company's new work features Afro-Cuban folkloric and popular dances, live and recorded music, movement, and text. It's also the 20th anniversary celebration of choreographer and director Susana Arenas Pedroso's arrival to the States, recognizing her contributions to the Bay Area. This is at East Side Cultural Center, 2277 International Boulevard in Oakland. Starts at 6 p.m. For more information, go to arenasdancecompany.com. And for Sunday, October 6, the Peña Community Chorus is celebrating their 40 years singing for peace, love, and justice. Join them for an evening of music, pictures, stories, and fun memories from 40 fabulous years of singing for peace and social justice in the Bay Area and far beyond. This is at La Peña Cultural Center, 3105 Shattuck Avenue in Berkeley. For more information, go to lapeña.org. And this has been a calendar of events, cultura y arte for the Bay Area. If you would like to add your event to our calendar, email us at Chronicles at kpfa.org. You've been listening to La Raza Chronicles, Crónicas de la Raza. If you'd like to stay up on our news, like us on Facebook at La Raza Chronicles on Facebook. If you want to hear this program or share it with a friend, you can go to soundcloud.com slash La Raza Chronicles and share it. If you have any ideas for interviews we should be doing or would like to get involved with our collective, you can email us at lajasachronicles at kpfa.org. Muchísimas gracias y buenas noches. Thank you.